Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS Podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's Medical Director. I'm here with our fantastic co-host, Dr. Patil Armenian, and we do not have our other fantastic co-host, Dr. Sajin Bakta, with us today. We will miss him, but we will trudge on. We also have a guest co-host with us, um, Dr. Nate Dreyfus. Hello, happy to be here. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about high-performance CPR. So Nate, thanks for being with us today. It's excited to have you on the podcast. Can you go ahead and just tell us about yourself? Yes, I am happy to be here. I am a fourth year resident uh, at the CSF Fresno Emergency Medicine Program, and I have a little bit of a background in EMS. I have a, some experience in urban, rural, uh, and search and rescue that I gained before and during medical school. And uh, next year, we'll be planning to do an EMS fellowship. Great. So let's kick it off. Why don't you just introduce us to high-performance CPR and tell us kind of about the background. So high-performance CPR is a very exciting topic. It's not brand new. So these are core ideas that have been kind of thrown around for a couple of decades in academic circles. Uh, initially, it was referred to as high-quality CPR. You'll hear some people call it pit crew CPR. Uh, but as we all know, there's always a lag time between new research evidence and any widespread change in practice regardless of how strong the evidence is. So here we are in 2024, and high-performance CPR is a real focus of ongoing nationwide discourse within EMS and also at the center growing efforts to improve pre-hospital resuscitation in systems across the country. Uh, right now in Fresno, we're actually in an exciting process of a countywide rollout of high-performance CPR training, which we'll talk a little bit more about later on. Of course, I want to give a big shout out to the doctors, researchers, and EMS leaders in Washington who developed Resuscitation Academy, which is the source of some of the inspiration and a little bit of the material for this episode. Uh, I had the opportunity to attend my first Resuscitation Academy about a couple months ago, and really inspiring and uh, motivating. Fantastic. Um, so let's talk about why does it matter? Just to make sure we're like all on the same page, you know, for the purpose of this discussion today, this is out of hospital cardiac arrest refers exclusively to non-traumatic arrest, right? So these are medical arrests. These are medical patients. Exactly. So out of hospital cardiac arrests typically don't have a great survival rate. So survival rates will be anywhere as low as like 2 to 11%, depending on what you look at. Um, and so we see on like TV shows and movies all the time that somebody arrests out in the field and then they come back and guess what? It's been shown over and over again that the rate shown in media is very different from real life. As things stand today, an individual's likelihood of surviving out of hospital cardiac arrest can be very low and it varies a lot depending on what community or geographic area they're in when they collapse. The disparity in survival rate can be massive. There's places in the U.S. where the likelihood of survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest can be 10 times greater or 10 times lower compared with another community. That difference doesn't just come down to transport times or population density either. There are urban and rural areas on both sides of that spectrum. As one of our assistant medical directors of SEMSA, Dr. Miranda Lewis, says, where you live should not determine if you live. Clearly, not all of that variability comes down to just the actions or training of EMS crews. There's a lot of factors at play. For example, public education on compression-only CPR. That affects the likelihood of bystander CPR. 
specialized dispatch training and protocols that can help dispatchers identify cardiac arrest more rapidly and to get resources en route faster, and to provide effective instructions for the 911 caller to perform CPR while EMS is on the way. But there's no question that the actions of EMS crews have a critical impact on patient outcomes, in part because the treatment a patient receives in the first 10 to 20 minutes after cardiac arrest largely determines their likelihood of survival and good neurologic outcome. For every minute without CPR after cardiac arrest, a patient's likelihood of survival decreases by about 10%. So survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is a time-dependent survival. So let's imagine a graph, right, with percent survival rate on the vertical axis and time on the horizontal axis. So you would see a steep downhill line that approaches 0% at about the 10-minute mark. So effective CPR makes this line a little less steep. It buys you additional time for defibrillation and transport to the emergency department. So every moment counts for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So Nate, let's go more into like what is high-performance CPR. So we've talked about the significance and kind of the context for high-performance CPR, and we'll define each individual component shortly, but high-performance CPR is essentially an approach to cardiopulmonary resuscitation that incorporates data-driven refinements to technique that have been based on years of CPR science and related research. So those components, chest compression rates, chest compression depth, chest compression recoil, minimizing interruptions, and avoiding excessive ventilation. So when these seemingly minor adjustments are put together, it represents best practice for the pre-hospital management of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest by professional teams. And more importantly, it's an approach that's been shown to improve rates of survival within EMS systems that have formally implemented high-performance CPR. So you might be thinking to yourself, don't we already do most of those things? CPR is CPR, right? So you just push fast and push hard. How nuanced can this really be? And the short answer is uh, small differences in technique can greatly affect the quality of CPR. And at a population level, these differences in CPR quality can affect survival rates dramatically. Some of the earliest data demonstrating how powerful these small changes can be came from King County and Washington State. King County includes the city of Seattle, University of Washington, and Medic One, which all together have a pretty storied history in the EMS world, one that could easily fill its own episode. The EMS system in King County is one of the first to fully embrace and protocolize high-performance CPR for their providers, and the survival rate for out-of-hospital V-fib arrest increased by 40% within just a few years of implementation. After 10 years of high-performance CPR, survival had nearly doubled compared with the rate prior to implementation. Well, and that's a huge deal, right? So think about it if I invented a medicine or a drug or a device and said that would double your survival rate from any other illness, right, cancer, something else. Hospitals, doctors everywhere would be buying this. Like, I doubled your survival rate. Oh, yeah, and spending lots of money. And guess what? This is free. Right. We're already doing most of this. It's just little, little tiny tweaks. And so that's why we want to talk about it today. Like, let's share these tweaks with everybody. So some of the metrics. So high-quality CPR performance metrics. Nate already mentioned them, but I'm going to hit them home when you're going to be so sick of hearing about them, right? So chest compression fraction needs to be greater than 80%. That means greater than 80% of the time your hands are on the chest. That's minimizing interruptions. You're not stopping. Continuous CPR. Compression rate of 100 to 120 per minute. Compression depth of at least 2 inches or 50 millimeters in adults. No leaning. And why no leaning? You need to promote full chest recoil. That chest needs to bounce back up. And then controlled breathing, no excessive ventilation. So we're going to kind of go through each of these and really talk about them in detail and the science behind it. 
Um, so Nate, tell us about what's happening in CPR. So you can think of the chest as a pump. When you push on the chest, it'll increase intrathoracic pressure and help eject blood from the heart and the lungs and send that blood to the brain and the rest of the body. Good compressions and sustained compressions will help create a blood pressure that circulates blood to the brain and the periphery. Let's talk about recoil. When you take your hands off the chest, you allow the chest to re-expand, and it actually creates a vacuum. So the chest, as it expands, is going to decrease intrathoracic pressure, and that decrease in pressure is going to suck blood back in from the brain and the periphery um, and allow that blood to, again, get pumped out on the next cycle. So the better your recoil, the better the refill of the heart is going to be, and every subsequent compression is going to generate more pressure and uh, circulate more blood to the brain. So that's why we are going to really emphasize that recoil over and over in this episode. It's not really something that we used to think about. Again, you know, we just think push hard, push fast used to be uh, kind of the mantra, but the recoil is really important. And it's important that we fully take our hands off the chest after each compression, create that vacuum and, and really promote that circulation. Let's go through some of the data. You know, a lot of this, Dr. Kukinchek from King County Medic One, medical director, and he's a teacher at the Resuscitation Academy, really breaks down the science of like, why? Why are we doing these things? Like, there's a lot of science out there behind it. We know a lot about this now. So we're going to talk about optimal chest compression rate. Like, how did we come to that? Patia, why don't you share that awesome study with us? Yeah, so in one study where they looked at over 6,000 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, they... Uh, measured the rate of compressions, and they looked at survival in accordance to the rate of compressions. And it was pretty clear that at 100 to 120 compressions per minute, survival is at its peak. If it's less than 100 per minute or more than 120 per minute, survival fell. So really, they could see with you know over 6,000 patients that the best survival was at 100 to 120 compressions per minute. To get 6,000 out of hospital cardiac arrest, like this is a huge study, right? And this is called the Resuscitations Outcome Consortium. So we really want to thank those researchers for doing that intense study of getting these many patients enrolled to give us this amazing data. So Nate, kick us off with compression depth. Why the two inches? Why not be four inches? Why not be one inch? Tell us about it. So compression depth uh, is one of the things that the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium data allowed us to look at and kind of confirm some of the, some of our understanding about its importance. In a study involving 9,000 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, in which the chest compression depth was monitored, survival to discharge was greatly affected by the depth of chest compression. The greatest survival was at a chest depth of 2 inches. And if you look at the data, you can see that survival rate drops off pretty significantly if you're not compressing that full 2 inches, and only really slightly if you're compressing beyond that 2 inches. So I think the lesson here is you need to compress at least two inches, and that's really going to maximize the rate of survival. So even if you're only compressing a half inch, kind of too shallow, you know, you're, you're not doing your full two inches, you're doing like one and a half inches, survival fell by 50% in, in that data set of 9,000 patients. I like to think of it as an equation. For every half an inch of depth, survival increases by 5%. So if it's my family member or your family member, please Two inches, right? We want to give them that best compression you can to create that blood pressure, that fake blood pressure, right? To bring that oxygenated blood to the brain and heart. All right, let's talk about recoil. This is kind of like the newest thing I think that a lot of us have to like untrain our mind about. So Patio, kick us off about chest recoil, the no leaning concept. Well, the whole concept of chest recoil is to let go enough to help the heart uh, refill with blood. 
Now, CPR is hard work. Um, those of us who've done it, it's like a real workout. You got to put your abs into it. Um, and often the compressor gets tired and does not lift hands off the chest. We just kind of lean on it. And when we lean, we actually interfere with the vacuum being created. So in a study done in pigs, looking at standard CPR and then CPR with leaning, which is only 75% recoil, they looked at the blood supply to the heart and brain, and with a little leaning, so hands not off the chest completely, the heart lost a third of its blood supply, and the brain lost half of the blood supply. So this really shows that you kind of really have to get your hands off the chest so that you can have the best recoil so that the heart can refill with blood. There's a lot of talk of just your hands off enough, like a credit card could slide through, right? You're not totally taking your hands yeah. off and stretching. It's like just off, let the chest come all the way up, that someone could else could slide a credit card through if they needed to, then you're back on, right? So it's a very intense physical thing. Right. And you want that upward cycle of the compression to be just as rapid as your downward to really promote that vacuum and really get that blood back in the chest. Nate, why walk us through controlled breathing? You know, 40 years ago, respirations were everything, right? Breathing was first. Now we've kind of switched. Tell us why. The reason that compressions only CPR has been taught uh, increasingly for bystanders uh, is, is for a couple of reasons. One, people are much more likely to intervene and do bystander CPR uh, if they feel more confident in their skills. And the compressions only CPR is a little bit easier of a skill set to teach to lay people. What they've also found uh, in several different animal models looking at, uh, for instance, dogs and, and V-fib arrests is that in the first four or five minutes of arrest, the oxygen saturations really don't decrease significantly. And similarly, the carbon dioxide concentrations don't increase dramatically. So in that four or five first minutes, what's really important is doing compressions to continue that forward circulation and to continue perfusion of the brain and the heart. So the most important pieces to remember in the first four to five minutes is that survival rate is most greatly affected by early CPR and early defibrillation. That's why we're not focused as much in ventilation in those first four or five minutes. As we know, the oxygen concentration and the carbon dioxide concentration aren't going to get too significantly off in those first few minutes. So the focus should really be on starting compressions and then getting defib as fast as possible. Now, um, excessive ventilation can actually cause problems too. So one of the issues can be that excessive ventilation will increase intrathoracic pressure, thus reducing preload, so less blood can actually fill into the heart, and therefore that will decrease the effectiveness of the compressions. Another thing that can happen is over-distension of the stomach. So this is when um, the stomach will just get filled with air, and that can make the patient start to vomit. And we definitely don't want that to happen. Now, I'm just going to add in also that this is something that is so ingrained into the general public that when they see you doing um, compressions without doing a lot of, you know, rescue breaths, they might start yelling at you or get upset. This happened to Danielle and I, actually, where people were not understanding what we were doing in a non-hospital environment in a pre-hospital setting. And then later we had to tell them like, no, this is a new type of CPR. This is high performance CPR. And this is why we weren't doing a ton of rescue breaths, for example. So this is a paradigm shift, I believe, in the way this is done. 
And I think too, in previous things, you might've heard like shove as much air in as you can, or like, you know, you did like what they call like a squeeze the bag, like the barrel and squeeze it. And you want just three fingers on the bag, a little squish enough to make the chest rise, right? So the idea is that in between the compressions, you're trying to squeeze in a little bit of breath because their lungs are working, right? Their heart is what stopped working. And so they, you just got to give them a little bit of breathing and we still want that heart to refill. So I'm sure online you can watch more CPR videos that show this, but just a little bit of air going in. Let's jump to the next part is, you know, we talked about chest compression rate, right? 100 to 120. We talked about depth of two inches. We talked about recoil, no leaning. We talked about recoiling breathing. Now let's talk about minimizing interruptions. Nate, why don't you take us through the minimizing interruptions? So minimizing interruptions, uh, not only one of the most important factors, but also one of the most difficult to implement consistently. The blood pressure generated by chest compressions falls to zero within about three seconds of your hands coming off the chest. So at that point, there's no flow to the heart or the brain. Once you pause, you don't just start where you left off. There's no blood pressure at all, and it takes 16 seconds, about 30 compressions, to make up for those pauses and generate the forward blood pressure and flow that you had before you stopped. So pausing CPR for just three seconds can cause the patient to lose about 20 seconds of perfusion. So there's a lot of different strategies that you can use to minimize interruptions. Yes, let's go through. Let's talk about some strategies for minimizing interruptions. We'll just kick it off and kind of go around the table. So one that we talk about with our crews during our high-performance CPR trainings is that they can discuss a plan for the code before they arrive on scene. And this is something that we've gotten good feedback from the crews too, especially those who work together consistently, that they already have kind of a plan in place about who's going to do what, who's going to put the pads on, who's going to check for pulses, uh, who's going to expose the chest and start compressions. And having those clear roles can really minimize delays in initiating CPR. And as we know, starting CPR early is one of the most important factors for survival. Another thing is to have well-choreographed transitions in compressions. So, okay, um, you know, on this count, I'm going to let go and you're going to take over. So just knowing that we're not going to have these like multi-second gaps. Another thing is everybody's AED is different. So if you're a fire crew, if you're a first responder, if you're at a baseball game and someone runs out with an AED, the charging time is different. So if it says, sure, any analyzing, you can't have your hands on the chest, right? That's a pause. And that's just whatever some ADs are two seconds analyzing, some take 12 seconds. But if it says shock advise while it's charging, do compressions. So you're going to start your compressions while it's charging. If ALS is on scene, you know that you can pre-charge the manual defibrillator before the pulse check. So really do compressions while the AED is charging. Having excellent communication between members of the team is, is extremely important And this isn't just during the code, this is before, as we kind of talked about already, having those clear roles, and even afterwards. So in the Resuscitation Academy, one of the things they emphasize is the ability to both give and receive feedback. This is obviously important for high-functioning teams in any type of resuscitation. But if the crew debriefs afterwards and says, you know, what could we have done better? What can we do better next time? Uh, This is ultimately, over over time, going to improve performance. One other thing we haven't mentioned is the role of mechanical CPR devices, such as the Lucas device. Data does not show a clear survival benefit for replacing manual with mechanical CPR in general, but they can be really beneficial in specific scenarios. For example, allowing for effective compressions during extrication from a house or transferring into the ambulance, rolling into the hospital, or rural service areas with really long transport times. So this is also something to consider and use if, you know, the setting is right. 
Think about combining all those things, you're really minimizing interruptions. And so the goal is less than three seconds. And part of that is it takes so long. Remember, it's going to take 16 seconds to build back up, 30 more compressions to build back up the blood pressure. It's going to pummel to zero. And so you want less than three seconds interruptions. So those are the five components of high-performance CPR. And we've kind of broken them down and talked about a little bit of the evidence that supports them. And while high-performance CPR by itself is extremely effective, it's obviously not the only thing affecting survival of these patients. Early CPR and early defibrillation remain the two most important factors affecting survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. But to round out our discussion, we'll talk about just a few of the other factors in play. Let's talk about early defib. You know, why does early defibrillation matter? The highest survival rates from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in the U.S. aren't actually in King County. It's in a small area of casinos in Las Vegas because there are security cameras and AEDs everywhere. If anyone goes down, security sees immediately and then sends a crew with AED. Many studies show greater than 50% survival rate with early defibrillation. You got to remember those VFib arrest patients are the ones you can get out fast enough from that lethal rhythm. So those are the patients we want to get to. You want to get to them fast and right away, right? You don't want the VFib now degrade into PEA and then we can't get them back out of it, right? It's pretty interesting that in a casino, these are security guards, right? They're non-medical, but they've been trained to get there fast, throw in the AED and shock them if they need it. There was a study published in 2000 in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at the collapse with VFib in casinos, and 73% survived when shock was delivered within three minutes. That survived like walked out of the hospital, went back to their normal lives. So early use of AED in casinos, airports, and airplanes really provide the opportunity to deliver a shock within minutes of collapse. Right, that's 2000. That's 24 years ago. This study was published. So this is old news, but it's such valuable news. I mean, that is such a big deal. It's huge. And that's why AEDs should be everywhere, right? At every school, everywhere, every high school, every place that people gather because the chance of somebody having an event and you got to get that on fast. Now let's talk about the importance of bystander CPR. Patil, why don't you kick us off here? This is bystander. This is a person who's walking along and someone next to them collapses. Bystander CPR is huge. The vast majority of studies show an approximate doubling in the likelihood of patient survival if bystanders start CPR before the arrival of EMS. And this is why we really promote that everybody take a CPR course at one point in their lives. The likelihood of bystander CPR can be increased over time through public education and teaching of hands-only CPR. And I'll just add, I think in the general public, there might be a reluctance to do CPR because they think, well, I don't want to like put my mouth on someone else's mouth and breathe into them. And it's like, no, we're talking about hands-only CPR, just do compressions. Studies have shown that implementing specialized training and a formal protocol for dispatchers to rapidly recognize potential out-of-hospital cardiac arrest during calls and then give effective telephone CPR instructions can dramatically increase rates of bystander CPR and really benefit overall survival rates. Now, here in Fresno, uh, one of our goals is to get out this knowledge more and more and teach hands-only CPR. This is super important. Let's talk about mindset. You know, so why does mindset matter? We really need to change your mindset. The idea is that you go into every resuscitation with the thought that everyone will survive. No one dies in my rig. You know, you could tell yourself no one dies under my care. And why this is is that mindset affects performance and then performance influences reality. So you need this culture of excellence, this culture of survival. You know, Dr. Kopas is a big 
uh, guru at the Resuscitation Academy. And he is known to quote, you know, what you believe determines how you perform. This will change behavior and culture so that everyone does well. We all have high standards. It's really interesting too. If you try your hardest, if you come to that resuscitation and work your butt off, you do all these things right, even if the patient does have a bad outcome, we all feel better. So kind of the moral hits to you are way less because you know you did everything you could and we all are going to get the wins too. They're in VFib arrest and we're doing everything right. They're going to walk out of there. Imagine that casino study, 70% walk out. That is huge. Another thing is BLS owns CPR. So you need the BLS providers who comes on first to own CPR. In Fresno County, Fresno Fire is going to own CPR. And ALS is going to work around BLS, right? So ALS, the paramedic's going to run in there, get the IV, put them on their monitor. They're going to do their skills Why Fresno Fire is owning CPR. And so this change in mindset, this change in culture matters. I think something that can change kind of our attitude and culture too is, is remembering that uh, these outcomes are, are not just about survival. It's about a good neuro outcome. And I think it's common for people to think, you know, no one survives out of hospital cardiac arrest or when they do, you know, they're not going to be functioning at their baseline or, or have any sort of quality of life. And uh, the AHA for the 2022 data uh, showed that for 80% of the people who survived to discharge, they're actually going to have good neurologic outcomes. So that's important to remember. So that means the people who do survive will walk out and live normal lives. So if you're not going to survive, you're not going to survive in those first 10 minutes, those first 20 minutes, right? So if you're going to survive the hospital discharge, you're going to have a good outcome. And that's really what we want for all our patients, for our family members, our community members, right? To go back out to leading wonderful, productive lives. Let's go through our summary take-home points. What do we want our team to remember about high-performance CPR? Nate. All right, so high-performance CPR in review involves uh, chest compression rate between 100 and 120. Compression depth of at least two inches in adults. No leaning, promoting that full chest recoil. Controlled breathing, avoiding excessive ventilation. And then maintaining that chest compression fraction above 80%. Really trying to do everything you can to minimize interruptions. Patel. I think my take-home point is that when it comes to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, this is about, you know, those first 10 to 20 minutes. And so this is the purview of all pre-hospital medicine. You're going to be the ones who are going to save this life. And so learning high-performance CPR is actually going to be a lifesaver. And if that person survives to good neurological outcome, that's on you. You did that. And so I think that that's huge because so many things we talk about have to do with oh, you know, get them to the hospital quickly and things will happen in the hospital. And this is the opposite of that. This is about the pre-hospital care. And so own high-performance CPR and do a great job and you will save lives. And my take-home point is similar to Patil's, just that this is a time-dependent survival. So every minute with CPR after cardiac arrest, remember the likelihood of survival decreases by 10% for every minute. So the faster we're on scene, the faster bystanders are doing it, the faster EMS gets there, the better. And if you're more interested in this topic, definitely check out resuscitationacademy.org. Um, there's a lot in the toolkit section that might be helpful. And again, these are the people that have put an immense amount of work into this field. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at 
podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast, produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.